Hello and welcome back to Femme Fatale. Thanks so much for tuning in again this week. I am so excited with the reception that I got last week with the podcast. Honestly, I'm blown away by everyone who decided to tune in and um, share the kind words um, about the podcast. It was really encouraging to know that other people are enjoying this content. Uh, This week, we're still talking about Margaret Atwood. Just to kind of recap, last week we talked about her life and, and her works and how how much she's accomplished in her life as a writer. Um, she's received over 130 awards and recognitions. Um, she's published a lot. <laughs> uh, many, many novels, which we'll talk about today. And uh, she had a very interesting upbringing. Um yeah, today we're going to talk about her novels, and um, we're going to start off a little bit with her other works, um, which includes some poetry, children's books, some nonfiction, and short stories. So I hope you are just as excited as I am to dive in here. something also that I did not cover last week and I meant to. Margaret Atwood is, she wouldn't consider her work um, science fiction in, in many respects. Uh, she's She said that in, in some interviews and I think a lot of that was in reference to The Handmaid's Tale because a lot of people categorize it as science fiction, which is kind of, it's, it's a miscategorization honestly because it's dystopian. Um, if you're if you're going to categorize it as something similar to science fiction, it'd be more like dystopian. But she likes to um, categorize *The Handmaid's Tale* and other other books like that that she's written um, as speculative fiction um, because to her, this is stuff that very well could happen, and that is that is up to the reader to decide for themselves whether they agree with her or not. Uh, the reason I'm including Margaret Atwood. Um, on this podcast um, is because she does have works that are very heavy science fiction leaning, uh, specifically the book that I will be reviewing next week, uh, Oryx and Crake. Uh, It's one of her more recent books, uh, recent as in within the past 20 years. (laughs) Uh, And so I'm including her for that reason. And I just wanted to cover that and let you guys know if you have heard in interviews that she doesn't consider her work science fiction. That's why I chose to include her, um, just because some of her work I would define as science fiction. Um, On that note, I also consider dystopian, uh, the dystopian genre, very similar to science fiction. Um, And so in the future, there will also be some dystopian novels that I will include. The two genres share a lot of similarities uh, because quite often dystopian books take place in the future um, and they have like a pre-apocalyptic setting, um, which is a very uh, science fiction feel because there's usually um, higher technology than at the time that it was written. But anyways, let's get into some of her works. Um, We, I think Margaret Atwood is, well, not think, I know, <laughs> she is the most well-known for The Handmaid's Tale. That is evident in the fact that it is a huge award-winning TV show now um, with the main actress, Elizabeth Moss. And so I was shocked to see that she has written a lot more than just novels in The Handmaid's Tale at that. She's written short fiction, um, children's books, which I feel like this is a weird thing to say, but with the uh, disparity of her other works, especially her novels, at least the the one that I'm currently reading and what I know of The Handmaid's Tale, it has a very despairing tone, and and so when you picture her, you I at least 
didn't really picture her writing children's books. So that was a pretty big shock. But it's really cool that she is able to diversify herself like that as a writer. Um, it's, it's not common. Many writers stick to one genre. Uh, and so it's really cool to see that she has reached, pa- reached past um, speculative fiction and um, science fiction. So she's written eight children's books. Um, first one is, is Up in the Tree, which was published in 1978. The most recent one is Wandering Wenda and Widow Wallop's Wonderground Washery. That is a mouthful and a tongue twister. <laughs> um, that one was published in 2011. Uh, and she's also published three graphic novels. Uh, those are published a lot more recently. The first one was published in 2016. Um, that one is called um, Angel Catbird, Dark Ho- oh, published by Dark Horse, sorry. <laughs> um, and then um, the second and third volume of Angel Catbird were published in 2017. Uh, and then there's War Bears, volumes one through three, published in 2018. Uh, and then she also has a lot of poetry. Uh, I believe I covered last week that she is a poet as well as a prose writer. And she's written quite a bit of poetry. Uh, Her first book of poetry was published in 1967. And since then, I mean, she's had a book of poetry published in pretty much every decade since then. Multiple, usually. Yeah, and she's, she's been included in a couple anthologies of poetry as well, published by Oxford University Press, which is uh, really impressive. Uh, <laughs> so Oxford is an incredibly prestigious literary um, community. Um, in addition to those categories, she's also published in nonfiction. Um, she's published some critiques as well as informative writing, I guess you could say. So she wrote a book called Survival, a thematic guide to Canadian literature. It's really ironic um, that she would write a book like that uh, because she was really the first um, big time author, fiction author in Canada. She is uh, one of the most, if not the most well-known author in Canada and Um, So for her to write that book is kind of ironic. I love it, though. It's incredible. And, you know, she, of course, included herself in that book. (laughs) Um, She also wrote a book about writing. It's called Writing with Intent, Essays, Reviews, and Personal Prose. She's clearly had a successful career um, with all the awards and and everything that's been published, really, and, and the fact that one of her books is a TV show now. And so learning anything about writing from her would be really beneficial. So if there's any writers listening, I'd recommend probably going and checking that book out. Um, she's also written, I'm seeing here, really interesting titles. Um, <laughs> oh, yes, it's called Negotiating with the Dead, a Writer on Writing. That sounds very interesting. So that's another one I'm definitely gonna have to check out as a writer. It sounds really intriguing. Um, but I mean, on top of everything else like she's one of her other books has also been turned into a tv show that one is on netflix it's called elias grace and um another one has been turned into a play called the penelope penelope i'm so sorry if i said that wrong it's quite likely that i did uh she's she has so much um to her name at this point knowing this much about her now, I'm, I'm so shocked that the only thing that's really talked about from her is The Handmaid's Tale, at least in the U.S. Um, I don't know about Canada or other countries, but here, like, I'd consider myself pretty well read, uh, and, you know, in tune or up to date with the literary community and and what's what's popular and I've never I never knew Atwood had this much work out there um, which just goes to show that incredible writers like Atwood they can have a successful career like this 
and still go highly unnoticed by the general population, or maybe I'm just totally blind, that could also be the case. Yeah, so I, I'm i just gonna go through some of her novels now, because um, those might be a little bit easier to access for some people. Um, if you'd like um, to look at her full bibliography, though, um, her full uh, list of works, in other words, you can go to her website, which is margaretatwood.ca, and then click on the Books Plus tab, and then click on Full Bibliography. Um, then you can look at her full list of, of works and um, look deeper into the ones I'm not covering more in depth today. Or you can just DM me on the podcast Instagram, femfatale.pod, and I'll be happy to answer any questions there as well. So, let's get into her novels. Um, so, she has published over 17, over 17, yeah, over 17 novels. Um, <laughs> one is not published yet, so I am a little mistaken there. One will be published in 2114, like we talked about in the last episode. She's part of the um, Future Library Project which uh, is a project started by uh, Katie Patterson, I believe, and um, each year they're asking a new author to write a manuscript that will be published in the year 2114 to specifically be put in this um, library in Norway, and it's going to contain a hundred different books from a hundred different authors, for each year that has passed since the beginning of the project, which was in 2014, and Margaret Atwood was the first author asked to contribute to the project. And so her final book that will ever be published will be published in 2114. I don't think you can find anything online about the book, which is really, I'm really sad I'm not going to be alive when this, this comes to a completion, but it'll be a really cool thing for the future generations to enjoy. Um, so I have all 17 of her books written down here, um, and I have all of the, um, kind of summaries, um, pulled up on my, on my laptop, and we're gonna go through them, because I have not read all of them. I, unfortunately, don't have that much time to read. <laughs> not enough to go through all of these books. So, I'm gonna go through all these summaries and just kind of do a little commentary on each, and then probably talk a little bit about The Handmaid's Tale TV show as well. Uh, her first book that was ever published is called The Edible Woman. It was published in 1969 and it is about Marion who is determined to be ordinary. She lays her head gently on the shoulder of her serious fiance and quietly awaits marriage, but she didn't count on an inner rebellion that would rock her stable routine and her digestion. Marriage a la mode, Marion discovers, is something she literally can't stomach. The Edible Woman is a funny, engaging novel about emotional cannibalism, men and women, and the desire to be consumed. Holy cow, like, I don't- how- how has nobody- how have I not heard of this book? <laughs> like, it sounds so good. That's such an interesting concept, especially for the time period that it was published in. In, in 1969, there was still that very prominent housewife social outlook, if you will. Like, that was still really popular um, as opposed to now. There's Most women work and have a day job. And there's nothing wrong with either having a day job or a night job or being in school or choosing to be a stay-at-home mom. Um, there's nothing wrong with any of those choices. But at that time, that it wasn't very common for a woman to be working. And so that is a really interesting concept for someone um, who to, to be talking about probably what a lot of women experienced at the time was like, I don't really want to do this, but this is what's expected of me, so I have to try. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. All right, so the next book is Surfacing. And I believe, if I remember correctly, this is actually the first book that she wrote for um, publishing, like to be published, uh, but it was rejected, I think for five years before the publisher finally decided to actually publish it. Um, so this would have been released first if it would have been originally accepted by the publisher. Uh, and this one was published in 1972, so a few years later. 
Um, so this one is about, uh, is a part detective novel, part psychological thriller. Surfacing is the story of a talented woman artist who goes in search of her missing father on a remote island in northern Quebec. Setting out with her lover and another young couple, she soon finds herself captivated by the isolated setting where a marriage begins to fall apart, violence and death lurk just beneath the surface, and sex becomes a catalyst for conflict and dangerous choices. Surfacing is a work permeated with an aura of suspense, complex with layered meanings, and written in brilliant, diamond-sharp prose. Here is a rich mine of ideas from an extraordinary writer about contemporary life and nature, families and marriage, and about women fragmented and becoming whole. So this one is also interesting. Um, in the documentary I watched about Atwood, this documentary was uh, done in the 70s or 80s. The director of the documentary questioned Atwood about this and, and if there was any truth uh, in in this novel surfacing um, because it seems to take place on the island that her family uh, used used to and still does spend time at quite often in their cabin because her family has a cabin on a remote island um, in Quebec and so he's like is there any truth to this is there any like you know and Atwood was like um well no my father has not disappeared he is quite alive he was back then anyways <laughs> so uh in her very um serious and serious way i'm she kind of dismissed his his thoughts and i did not like that director very much he was asking very presumptuous questions but to be fair i think she did say that there were some some aspects of the island and some some of the setting that she did draw um from from that real island um and, and use in the book so it'd be really interesting um, to experience and kind of kind of think about as reading as you read the book. Uh, it sounds really interesting too. I love books that make me think. Um, psychological thrillers are something that I really enjoy, but I also have to limit myself because sometimes they freak me out too much and I get too paranoid. <laughs> so it also is is a very different tone than the last book that we just talked about because the edible woman is very much an emotional journey of this woman and this one is um seems like a, eh, maybe not action-packed this could be a bit more of an emotional journey as well but it it says it's a part detective novel part psychological thriller and so it seems a very different tone which just goes to show the how much talent atwood has for doing different types of writing across in different novels um it's, it is incredible it'd be i think this might be a better way to describe it um it'd be like van gogh trying to do a, a realistic painting like a portrait like a like a i don't know all artists artistic terms um my mother would be very ashamed of me right now <laughs> the artist that she is um but it'd be like him trying to do a, a realistic portrait of somebody, like, making it look like a photograph. That's just not his style. And so the fact that Margaret Atwood can master all these different styles of writing, all these different genres, is incredible. Because it's not very common, like I said before. Um, but anyways, I digress. Uh, so the next book I have on the list is Lady Oracle. Uh, this book was written in 19, or I, I'm sorry, it was published in 1976. Um, the summary says, Joan Foster is the bored wife of a myopic band the bomber. She takes off overnight as Canada's new super poet, pens lurid gothics on the sly, attracts a blackmailing reporter, skids cheerfully in and out of menacing plots, hair-raising traps, and passionate trysts and lands dead and well in Terremoto, Italy. In this remarkable, poetic, and magical novel, Margaret Atwood proves yet again why she is considered to be one of the most important and accomplished writers of our time. Yet again! Like, this book, it sounds so good. It's like a, it's like a really interesting twist on like a, I don't know, not romance. I don't even know. Like, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And something you'll notice too, as we look at her novels, is that they all have, I think they all have female protagonists, and most of them 
do cover um, female rights in some way, shape, or form, and women having autonomy and the ability to choose things for themselves and be strong and, and do things and accomplish things, which Atwood has very much so done herself in her lifetime. Yeah, uh, so there's um, Lady Oracle, and next one is Life Before Man. This title could... Man, I really don't know what to expect based off the title. There's a few things I can think of. <laughs> okay. Imprisoned by walls of their own construction, here are three people, each in midlife, in mid-crisis, forced to make choices after the rules have changed. Elizabeth, with her controlled sensuality, her suppressed rage, is married to the wrong man. She has just lost her latest lover to suicide. Nate, her gentle, indecisive husband, is planning to leave her for Les... Leslie? Lesie? I'm gonna go with Lesie. A perennial innocent who prefers dinosaurs to men. Hanging over them all is the ghost of Elizabeth's dead lover and the dizzying threat of three lives careening inevitably toward the same climax. There is, is, again, that kind of note of existential crisis. And I think there's, there is a, at least in a couple books now we've seen, a theme of sexuality. Um, so that's something I would also kind of note going into her books is that there may be some sexual content that you might not like. Uh, for some people, some people are totally okay with that. Uh, so that's just something to note and maybe um, do some research on before picking up a book uh, by Atwood. It's a really interesting premise, kind of a kind of a, a twist on romance almost. I wonder if there is something, if there's an actual ghost or if it's kind of just Elizabeth kind of summoning like a, a reimagining, if you will, of her late lover. Um, throughout the book, because I'm, I would assume she's the protagonist and the, and the narrator. Um, anyways, moving on to Bodily Harm. Um, this one was published in 1981. Bodily Harm is about the story of Rennie Wilford, a young journalist whose life has begun to shatter around the edges. Rennie flies to the Caribbean to recuperate, and on the tiny island of Saint Antoine, she is confronted by a world where her rules for survival no longer apply. By turns comic, satiric, relentless, and terrifying, Margaret Atwood's bodily harm is ultimately an exploration of the lust for power, both sexual and political, and the need for compassion that goes beyond what we ordinarily mean by love. There's not a whole lot of detail about, about the book itself. It just kind of tells you that she flies to the Caribbean to figure her life out, and she kind of has to make some dif make some decisions to change her life choices. I kind of wish there was more to go off, because that could mean a lot of different things. But it's a relatively short book. It's only 291 pages, so that might be why the uh, summary is lacking a little bit. But yeah, this one definitely sounds like it will have um, some sexual content in it, especially based off of the cover on Goodreads. <laughs> so that's, that's something to keep in mind if you're interested in this book. Um, so the next one is The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, so I'm not going to talk a ton about this one right now. Um, I'm just going to kind of mention it because I want to kind of wrap up the episode talking about the TV show uh, a little bit. Um, so The Handmaid's Tale was published in 1985. And then The Testaments, which is the sequel to Handmaid's Tale, was published in uh, 2019. And it was published kind of, uh, it was published by Atwood in response to the TV show. There was some questions from fans after the first season as to whether whether the show was really sticking to to the storyline anymore because the first season is based off of the handmaid's tale which is one book and so there was no more content for them to go off after the first book <laughs> and so the first season ended and it was like okay well we're just making it up now uh, but anyways we'll discuss that more later so I will go over kind of like the summary of that at the end of the episode. After Handmaid's Tale, the cat's, or sorry, just Cat's Eye was published in 1988. 
Cat's Eye is the story of Elaine Risley, a controversial painter who returns to Toronto, the city of her youth, for a retrospective of her art. Engulfed by vivid images of the past, she reminisces about a trio of girls who initiated her into the fierce politics of childhood and its secret world of friendship, longing, and betrayal. Elaine must come to terms with her own identity as a daughter, a lover, and artist, and woman. But above all, she must seek release from her haunting memories. Disturbing, hilarious, and compassionate, Cat's Eye is a breathtaking novel of a woman grappling with the tangled knots of her life. Uh, so this book definitely is not in the uh, science fiction category, it sounds like. It's definitely more of like a realistic fiction and that kind of thing. But it also doesn't look like it from the cover. There's a woman floating over a bridge holding a glowing orb. So take that as you will. <laughs> also, like, I haven't read any of these books besides Oryx and Crate. So, Crake, excuse me. And so take any judgment calls or opinions I have with a grain of salt. Anyways, Cat's Eye. Based off of the description, I'd say it's probably more of a realistic fiction kind of vibe. But that's really interesting. Um, artists might enjoy this since the main character is a painter. I'm also curious, so it says she's a controversial painter. So what does that mean? Is it like a Banksy kind of thing? I mean, not necessarily like a street artist, but like doing politically controversial stuff or like van gogh or he just wasn't respected in his time i say that like it doesn't mean anything the man committed suicide because of it i think that'd be a really interesting story to to follow kind of see what that means like to be a controversial painter and what the deal is with her friends and why there's some drama there but yeah so that's a cat's eye excuse me just cat's eye no the in front of it this next one, okay, the title has me very curious. It's called The Robber Bride. This one was published in 1993. Um, so this book is actually inspired by a fairy tale called The Robber Bridegroom. I'll just read you the whole Goodreads summary here. Uh, Margaret Atwood's The Robber Bride is inspired by The Robber Bridegroom, a wonderfully grisly tale from the Brothers Grimm in which an evil groom lures three maidens into his lair and devours them one by one. But in her version, Atwood brilliantly recasts the monster as Xenia, a villainess of demonic proportions, and sets her loose in the lives of three friends, Tony, Charis, and Roz, all three have lost men, spirit, money, and time to their old college acquaintance, Xenia. At various times and in various emotional disguises, Xenia has insinuated her way into their lives and practically demolished them. To Tony, who almost lost her husband and jeopardized her academic career, Xenia is a lurking enemy commando. To Roz, who did lose her husband and almost her magazine, Xenia is a cold and treacherous bitch. To Cheris, who lost a boyfriend, quarts of vegetable juice, and some pet chickens, and he is a kind zombie, maybe soulless. In love and war, illusion and deceit, Xenia's subterranean malevolence takes us deep into her enemies' pasts. Um, and that summary was actually written by Lori Moore from New York Times Book Review. I gotta give credit where credit is due. Uh, so this... Sounds fantastic. This would definitely fall into more of a, well, I was going to say it sounds more like a fantasy because, I mean, she uses the word monster to describe Xenia or Xenia, um, however you say it. But, I mean, this definitely could just be like an emotional, psychological book, to be honest, because if you can do all of those things without being like physically a monster you can do those things emotionally to someone that's really interesting i think this would be a great read especially if you're looking for something suspenseful and also something that has a lot of character arc in it um really good character arc is my guess and would it would deal a lot with friendship and the relationships between characters which i think would be really interesting and make the story really really good this one's a little longer. It's like 530 pages. But 
well worth it, I'm sure. Okay, so this next one is the other TV show adaptation of Atwood's work. Um, this one's called Elias Grace. It is adapted on Netflix, or was at one point if it is no longer on Netflix. I have not checked. I probably should have. Uh, but this one was published in 1996, and this book uh, takes place in 1843. And Grace Marks has been convicted for her involvement in the vicious murders of her employer and his housekeeper and mistress. Some believe Grace is innocent. Others think her evil or insane. Now serving a life sentence, Grace claims to have no memory of the murders. An up-and-coming expert in the burgeoning field of mental illness is engaged by a group of reformers and spiritualists who seek a pardon for Grace. He listens to her story while bringing her closer and closer to the day she cannot remember. What will he find in attempting to unlock her memories? Uh, and so this book actually also won the Booker Prize for Atwood. This sounds fantastic. So one, I love that it takes place in 1843 so there's some historical fiction going on there yet another genre to add to atwood's long list <laughs> and it's really it's really interesting especially that uh talking about repressed memories um that's a very real thing that people go through uh, when they go through traumas they they repress the memory of of what happened they literally can't remember so I, this is i might i'm probably gonna add this to my my to be read pile or tbr which is stupidly long <laughs> i'm already like i'm already thinking of possible endings to the book because <laughs> one if somebody else did it did she discover the bodies and that's what and so then they just accused her because she's the maid or um servant i guess or did the killer let her go for some reason because she'd be a good person to frame? I don't know. Guess you'll have to find out for yourself. All right. Uh, or you could you could also watch the Netflix show. <laughs> okay. So this next one is called The Blind Assassin, uh, and it was published in two thousand. So the summary on Goodreads says Margaret Atwood takes the art of storytelling to new heights in a dazzling novel that unfolds layer by astonishing layer and concludes a brilliant and wonderfully satisfying twist told in a style that magnificently captures the colloquial colloquialisms and cliches of the 1930s and 40s the blind assassin is a richly layered and uniquely rewarding experience it opens with these simple resonant words 10 days after the war ended my sister drove a car off the bridge are spoken by Iris, whose terse account of her sister Laura's death in 1945 is followed by an inquest report proclaiming the death accidental. But just as the reader expects to settle into Laura's story, Atwood introduces a novel within a novel, entitled The Blind Assassin. It is a science fiction story told by two unnamed lovers who meet in a dingy backstreet room. When we return to Iris, it is through a 1947 newspaper article announcing the discovery of a sailboat carrying the dead body of her husband, a distinguished industrialist. For the past 25 years, Margaret Atwood has written words of striking originality and imagination. In The Blind Assassin, she stretches the limits of her accomplishments as never before, creating a novel that is entertaining and profoundly serious. The Blind Assassin proves once again that Atwood is one of the most talented, daring, and exciting writers of our time. Okay, wow, there's a lot here. I was not at all expecting that. So I've read another book similar to that whole um, novel within a novel, Inception kind of deal. Um, one of the authors that I love is Jodi Picoult. I've only read one book by her, but I love her for that book because it is it is that good. <laughs> um, the book is called The Storyteller, and... It is a historical fiction novel about the Holocaust, but it also takes place in present day. And there there are several different storylines intertwined within the book, all the while you're reading a very clearly fantastical novel written by one of the characters in 
in the novel itself, the real novel, and so Jodi Bacall did a fantastic job with that book as well. I'd highly recommend it. It is the only book that has made me cry, which says a lot because I don't cry very often. Okay, but anyways, so this book that Margaret Atwood has written, this sounds fantastic. It's really interesting. So there clearly, Iris does not think her sister's death was an accident. She thinks it was a suicide, is my guess. Just by that first line, um, my sister drove a car off the bridge, which would make me assume it was a suicide. If not suicide, then someone killed her made it look like a suicide. That's really interesting. Um, just with the switch back and forth between the, the science fiction novel and then also, and Iris's story. I'm very intrigued and why her husband was found dead on a sailboat. I don't know. I have so many questions. <laughs> I'm I'm just getting a lot of books that need to be on my TBR list now, so this is great. This is wonderful. <laughs> um, so the next uh, few books on the list are the Mad Adam trilogy, which is one of her more recent works. Some of her more recent works. It's three books. Ma uh, Oryx and Crake is the first one, which is the book I'll be reviewing in the next episode and uh, kind of diving into a little bit more. So I'm not going to talk about that one a whole lot in this episode. Uh, the second book is um, The Year of the Flood. I don't think I'm going to read the summaries for these just because, especially in trilogies, like you don't want to read the summaries of the later books if you haven't read the previous ones because it can give it away. So I'm not going to read the... the um, Summaries for Mad Adam or The Year of the Flood. Uh, Mad, Adam, Mad Adam is the third book. And it also won the Goodreads Choice Awards um, in 2013, um, which is pretty awesome. It tells you it's a good book then, um, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Works and Craig, just like the summary of it. Okay, so the Goodreads Summary says, Oryx and Crake is at once an unforgettable love story and a compelling vision of the future. Snowman, known as Jimmy before mankind was overwhelmed by a plague, is struggling to survive in a world where he may be the last human, and mourning the loss of his best friend, Crake, and the beautiful and elusive Oryx, whom they both loved. In search of answers, Snowman embarks on a journey with the help of the green-eyed children of Crake. Through the lush wilderness that was so recently a great city until powerful corporations took mankind on an uncontrolled genetic engineering ride, Margaret Atwood projects us into a near future that is all too familiar and beyond our imagining. So, again, I'm not going to talk too much about this one because we're going to dive into it next week. I'm very excited to do that, by the way, because, whoa, with everything happening in the world right now, there's, there's a lot to unpack with this book. I have to be honest, when I chose this book, I totally forgot about the plague part. I was really just focused on making sure I picked a book that was kind of in the science fiction realm, <laughs> uh, or close to it, and this one definitely is. But then I realized, oh my gosh, there is a plague in this book, and wow, look at the state of the world today. Isn't it great? It is not, by the way. I'm being very sarcastic. Anyway, so that's Oryx and Crake in the Mad Adam trilogy. I'm not going to go into the, the, the second and third one because I don't want to give spoilers for anything that happens in the trilogy. Okay, so the next one, which was made into a play, is called The Penelopeid. I believe that's how you say it. Um, so this book is about... Uh, Penelope, the wife of Odysseus, and the cousin of the beautiful Helen of Troy, and is portrayed as the quintessential faithful wife, Penelope is. Her story is a sal salutary lesson through the ages. Um, left alone for 20 years when Odysseus goes off to fight in the Trojan War after the abduction of Helen, Penelope manages, in the face of scandalous rumors, to maintain the kingdom of Ithaca, bring up her wayward son, and keep over humored... Uh, sorry, keep over a hundred suitors at bay simultaneously. When Odysseus finally comes home after enduring hardships, overcoming monsters, and sleeping with goddesses, he kills her suitors and, curiously, twelve of her maids. 
In a splendid contemporary twist to the ancient story, Margaret Atwood has chosen to give the telling of it to Penelope and of her twelve hanged maids, asking, what led to the hanging of the maids and what was Penelope really up to? In Atwood's dazzling, playful retelling, the story becomes as wise and compassionate as it is haunting, and as wildly entertaining as it is disturbing, with wit and verve, drawing on the story telling and poetic talent for which she herself is renowned, she gives Penelope new life and reality and sets out to provide an answer to ancient mystery. I am a sucker for Greek mythology. I just am. <laughs> I love the Percy Jackson series growing up. I will always, always read a book that has to do with Greek mythology. I have several on my bookshelf right now. I don't know if anybody else saw it, but Stephen Fry wrote a Greek mythology book. It is gorgeous. Oh my gosh. It's hardcover. It was so expensive, but it was so worth it because it is one of the most beautiful books I've ever owned. Um, there's actually three books in the series. And I'm like, okay, you need to stop because I don't have this much money, but it's fine. I only have the first one. But anyways, I love Greek mythology. So this book sounds really, really good. It was turned into a play. Which is really fitting, considers, um, considering Homer, I believe, has also been turned into a play. I'm sorry, The Odyssey. Jeez. <laughs> that sounds really interesting. Um, really, it sticks to um, Atwood's kind of theme of, of focusing on women and, and what they do behind closed doors. I don't know why I said it like that, but here we are. <laughs> this next one is called The Heart Goes Last. And um, The Heart Goes Last was published a bit more recently. It was published in 2015. Um, so it was a very recent, very recent publish. Um, so in Heart Goes Last, Margaret Atwood puts the human heart to the ultimate test in an utterly brilliant new novel that is as visionary as The Handmaid's Tale and as richly imagined as The Blind Assassin. Stan and Charmaine are a married couple trying to stay afloat in the midst of an economic and social collapse. Job loss has forced them to live in their car, leaving them vulnerable to roving gangs. They desperately need to turn their situation around and fast. The Positron Project in the town of Consilience seems to be the answer to their prayers. No one is unemployed and everyone gets a comfortable clean house to live in for six months out of the year. On alternating months, residents of Consilience must leave their homes and function as inmates in the Positron prison system. Once their month of service in the prison is completed, they can return to their civilian homes. At first, this doesn't seem like too much of a sacrifice to make in order to have a roof over one's head and food to eat. But when Charmaine becomes romantically involved with the man who lives in their house during the months when she and Stan are in the prison, a series of troubling events unfolds putting Stan's life in, in danger. With each passing day, Positron looks less like a prayer answered and more like a chilling prophecy fulfilled. This is a really interesting concept. I think, without reading the book, um, <laughs> it sounds like it could be almost a commentary on, on the American prison system, and maybe this is an issue in Canada too, I don't really know, um, but just how quickly people come in and out without there really being any correction. And just letting loose criminals into the street when they are just going to do the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, but then there's also people being wrongly accused of things. And anyways, it's a huge mess. Um, that kind of comes to mind reading this summary. But yeah, that's really interesting. Um, also, talk, you know, covering um, poverty and kind of like almost like a welfare system, but not really. It's like a weird in between it's like a weird social experiment that i would never want to be part of and i i'd wonder if the if the prison would be the same as kind of like prisons are now or if it'd be really different because it's a bunch of people who are maybe not necessarily meant to be in prison and so so there's not like a bunch of murderers or rapists in there. It's just a bunch of people who need a home. I don't know. Uh, something to think about. Mm, that'd be some kind of society. <laughs> I don't want to think about that. 
that's for sure. All right, and the the last one I want to talk about um, is Hagseed, and it was published in 2019, same year. Or no, I'm sorry, it was published in 2016. That was very wrong. Okay, 2016. This is part of the Hogarth Shakespeare Project. Gotta be honest, I don't know what that is. We're gonna look at it. So it's a project that is trying to retell the works of William Shakespeare for a modern audience. Okay, that's super cool. And makes sense. I just lost... I just lost Hagseed. So we're gonna pull that back up here. I'm a huge Shakespeare fan as well. I love Shakespeare. People thought I was weird because I liked reading Shakespeare in school. Maybe I am. I don't know. All right. So Hagseed is, so this one is about The Tempest, or it's a modern retelling of The Tempest, which is a play by Shakespeare. And the summary, it says, when Felix is deposed as in, as artistic director of the Makeshweg, holy cow, Makeshweg, that's what we're going to go with, a theater festival by his devious assistant and longtime enemy. His production of The Tempest is cancelled, and he is heartbroken. Reduced to a life of exile in rural southern Ontario, accompanied only by his fantasy daughter Miranda, who died 12 years ago, Felix devises a plan for retribution. Eventually, he takes the job teaching literacy through theater to the prisoners at the nearby Burgess Correctional Institution, and is making a modest success of it when an auspicious star places his enemies within his reach. With the help of their own interpretations, digital effects, and the talents of a professional actress and choreographer, the Burgess Correctional Players prepare to video their Tempest. Not surprisingly, they view Caliban as the character with whom they have the most in common. However, Felix has another twist in mind, and his interactive and illusion-ridden version of the Tempest that will change their lives forever. But how will Felix deal with his invisible Miranda's decision to take a part in the play? Um, so I have not read The Tempest. So yeah, I know I'm a huge Shakespeare fan, but I haven't read all of his plays. I know, it's very hypocritical of me. But I haven't read The Tempest, so that did not totally make sense to me. But it's all, it sounds really interesting. And I I always I always love in literature and real life, especially, <laughs> when people who are often viewed as outcasts or marginalized are used for, not used, but asked to join in something and be a part of something. I think that's a really cool thing to do uh, just because they're left out a lot and people don't really consider them for things and um, there's a lot of potential within the marginalized. But yeah, that sounds like a really interesting twist on the play. I'm assuming it's a twist, even though I've not read the play. It's fine. Okay, so those are all of Margaret Atwood's novels. As you can see, she has a wide range of genres. There's some science fiction in there. There's some uh, kind of classic literature. There's some mystery. There's some thriller. There's some suspense. There's a bit of everything. So if you, if you, you know are very, you know, you stick to one genre when you read, you can probably find something in that genre from Margaret Atwood. Besides fantasy, it sounds like. There is no high fantasy by Margaret Atwood that I can tell. So like I said, um, I kind of wanted to cover The Handmaid's Tale a little bit in this episode. So I'm going to make this on the quick side because we're uh, episode's getting a little bit long at this point. I don't want to bore you guys, but I think I think it needs to be talked about because uh, Margaret Atwood again is very accomplished, and a lot of her accomplishment, uh, I should say, success. Her accomplishment is due to herself and her talent, but her success recently is honestly brought on by The Handmaid's Tale being made into a TV show. Like I, as much as I hate to admit that and admit that TV shows do a lot for authors. Not because it's a bad thing, because it's a great thing. Like, anything to help the author gain attention and a following is, is fantastic. But I wish, as a writer, people were more drawn to literature than TV. But that's just the society we live in, and that's okay. Because also, as a writer, 
it'd be super cool to see one of my stories on the screen. Anyways, so A Handmaid's Tale is about Offred, and she's a handmaid in the Republic of Gilead. She may leave the home of the commander and his wife once a day to walk to food markets whose signs are now pictures instead of words because women are no longer allowed to read. She must lie on her back once a month and pray that the commander makes her pregnant because in an age of declining births, Offred and the other handmaids are valued only if their ovaries are viable. Offred can remember the years before when she lived and made love with her husband Luke, when she played with and protected her daughter, she had a job, money of her own, and access to knowledge, but all of that is gone now. Funny, unexpected, horrifying, and altogether convincing, The Handmaid's Tale is at once scathing, satire, dire warning, and tour de force. So, like I said, The Testaments was written in response to the ending of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, I kind of can't really, I can't really say a whole lot besides the fact that all of the questions that readers have had about the society are answered in The Testaments. It is still a narrative, it's still a story, it's not just like a Q&A book, from what I can tell. But I can't really say much else than that because it is going to give away spoilers for The Handmaid's Tale. So, going back to that, Hulu created a TV show based off of this book. The first season is the first, is the book. The second, third, and fourth season are what the director has expanded upon. And Margaret Atwood, I believe, has had some say Maybe not some say, but she is at least satisfied with the work that they're doing. Um, she thinks it's a good adaptation, from what I can tell. Which is, honestly, it can, it's kind of rare. Um, quite often, adaptations are not done well. If I'm being honest. <laughs> there are too many that were just, wow. I'm <laughs> looking at you, Percy Jackson. Uh, <laughs> thank God they're doing another one. Wow, very happy about that. But Handmaid's Tale, cinematically, was done very well. I have not watched more than a few episodes because I couldn't handle it, if I'm being honest. The end of this summary um, says it's an unexpected, it's unexpected and horrifying and convincing, and that is utterly true of the TV show. That's talking about the book and, and... So everyone receives things differently. Uh, they process things differently, and some people... For some people, visuals aren't so bad. Um, for myself, if something is visualized, it affects me in a much different way than if I'm just reading it on a page. If I'm reading it on a page, I can disassociate myself from the story and know that this isn't real. This is not happening to me. This isn't a real experience. I should say these aren't real people. These are characters. While the things happening on the screen may have happened to other people in a different time and place in real life, this is not real life, the TV show. And that is a lot harder for me to do with visuals, with TV shows and with movies. And so I have to be very careful with what I watch personally. And the contents of this show in this book, there's, it's a really interesting concept. And I think the concept is really cool. Not cool. It's awful. Uh, but the story is good. It's a good story with a very disturbing concept. Because it talks about women's rights being completely stripped away. And um, this book and this TV show really, really uh, showcases Margaret Atwood's knowledge of the Bible. Um, um, however extreme it is, the foundation of the society of uh, the Republic of Gilead is based off of a Bible verse about how when Jacob's wife Rebecca could not conceive, she gave her handmaid to Jacob to conceive for her. And so these men decided to create this society because there was a decline in fertility and people were no longer giving birth because of that. And so the human population was declining severely and they're like, we need to fix this. Instead of just saying, maybe they, maybe people should just die out. Maybe we're not all that great, which is probably the approach they should have taken. But anyways, and so um, they overtook the government and implemented the society. I there I have a lot of strong feelings about this story and I'd say they're probably very controversial. Um I'm going to say right now there's probably going to be spoilers if anyone wants to watch the TV show or read the book. 
I'm not going to go into detail with anything, but I don't know what people consider spoilers, and so I'm just saying that right now, and I probably should have said it earlier. Anyways, I hated the TV show. Like I said, I only watched a few episodes because that's all I could stomach. This TV show is award-winning. Um, so it was, like I said, cinematically done very, very well. That's why it won awards. The, the camera action was really good. The lighting was perfect. The music was fantastic. The acting was done so, so well. But this story should not be on screen. And this is all my opinion, and you are welcome to disagree with me, but if this story is going to continue to be per- to be told on the screen, there needs to be trigger warnings. Because I, I've never, I've been blessed and lucky enough to never have been sexually assaulted in any way. And even so, I was having anxiety and panic attacks trying to watch this TV show because it was so horrendous and so awful what was happening and so realistically depicted and it was just so disgusting and i i i i really don't know how someone who has gone through that could even stomach watching it and so it just it shocked me when people are are i don't know it 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 shocked it shocks me that people say this is such a great show but it just it feels like to me it's just perpetuating this idea that sexual assault is okay and obviously most people are going to say it's not because <laughs> it's not <laughs> but having a tv show where that is the premise of the show is women getting sexually assaulted on a regular basis for the good of man literally just men <laughs> it just seems to glorify the concept and it Again, I I only watched a few episodes of the first season, and so I know there's, I know based off of things I read after the fact that that's not all that it is about, and it is a dystopian novel, and so like, obviously there's some sort of uprising probably. I don't know for sure, because I didn't finish it. (sighs) The problem that I have is that I think these are good things to talk about, and I think that, I think it's a good story. But it should have stayed in a book. I this is something that is too horrific to watch. I'm not. I'm. I'm a widely read person, but I wouldn't say I'm a widely watched person. I guess I don't know how else to phrase that. I've read way more books than I have read watched movies or TV shows, and so you may correct me if I'm wrong. But there are plenty of movies and TV shows with sex scenes or fade to black scenes in them, but I have not seen. A TV show or movie where this is constant, just constantly showing women being sexually assaulted. That was my main problem with the TV show. But, like I said, acting is phenomenal. Elizabeth Moss does, wow, a phenomenal job. Just, she looks dead inside, which is the point. <laughs> uh, the story is great, the character arc is is wonderful um the point at which i stopped you're starting to see some of the backstory of of the commander and his wife which was really interesting to see because you're starting to see a different part of of the commander's wife which is really cool because she seemed like an awful person until you started to learn more about her and it's like whoa all right yeah i misjudged you (laughs) i think there's a lot to be said about this tv show and if you have thoughts that you'd like to share feel free to dm me on my instagram uh, I, the podcast Instagram. I'd love to talk about that with you. And if anyone has like questions or thoughts or concerns, um, we can probably bring that up next week on the podcast for a little bit. Otherwise, that's all I have to say about The Handmaid's Tale because otherwise it's just going to be me ranting about the same thing over and over again. No one wants to hear that. So um, I'm going to end with a few things here. So I'm going to start talking about what I'm currently reading at the end of each episode. Um, So currently I'm reading Oryx and Crake, obviously. For uh, next week's episode, we're going to dive into that and talk about it a bit more. Um, I'm also um, doing a reread of A Darker Shade of Magic by V.E. Schwab, my favorite author. It is a fantastic book. It's the first book in her um, Shades of Magic trilogy, which she is also writing a second trilogy for called Threads of Power. Oh my gosh, I can't wait for it to come out. Wow. I mean, she's just starting to write it, so it's going to be a while. (laughs) But 
Oh my gosh, I love this story. I don't like, I'm listening to the audiobook this time, and I, I do not like the narrator. I'm sorry. He does weird voices for Lila, and it just, it makes me upset. But anyways, and then I'm about to start The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Um, so it's a fantasy book. Um, I was recommended by a friend years ago, and then I recommended it to my husband, who then read it and re-recommended it to me. So I'm finally going to start that one as well. Yes, I'm one of those people who reads like five books all at once, because there's simply too many in this world to only read one at a time. Uh, so like I said, next week we're going to talk about Oryx and Crake a little bit more in depth. If you've been reading along, which I hope you have, um, feel free to DM me questions or thoughts. I'll put something in the podcast uh, story about that, asking for your guys' thoughts and questions, and those will be shared on the podcast next week and kind of talked about. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at femfatale.pod. And if you liked the show, please rate and review and share with your friends and family. Have a great week.